Welcome to the Lead Podcast, helping you to get it, grow it, and give it. Hey guys, welcome back to the Lead Podcast. We are starting and launching season two today with an absolute banger of an episode with Sean Boonstra. Sean Boonstra is a man that needs no introduction, like many of our guests uh, will this season. But uh, just so you know, uh, we are looking forward to getting right back on our release schedule, the first, third, and fifth Sunday of each month, when there's a fifth Sunday, of course. We'll be releasing new lead podcast episodes. I can't wait for you to hear some of the episodes that we have for you, from today's on preaching to the secular mind, to uh, talking about the Me Too movement and, and how the church can deal with abuse and and some of these other huge issues that are plaguing our congregations and our churches. So, Guys, please enjoy today's episode of The Lead Podcast with Sean Boonstra. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lead Podcast. Our special guest today is Sean Boonstra. Uh, Welcome, Sean. Hey, Roger. It's really good to be here. I am pretty sure that most of our listening audience is acquainted with you, but <laughs> for the the two or three that are not, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, oh yeah, it's a lot more than two or three. I uh, I am now the speaker director for the Voice of Prophecy, and that's because I can't hold down a job. I think this is my third media ministry I've been involved in. Uh, I've been pastoring or doing frontline evangelism for about twenty five years and uh, eat, sleep, and breathe the subject. It's all that I do. And so uh, for 25 years, I've been living mostly on the road and uh, sharing the gospel. That is fantastic. So tell us a little bit about your experience with Jesus. Like, how do you get to know uh, the gospel? Were you always an Adventist? How do you find... Oh, yeah, uh, no, no, I'm a, I'm a convert. And I'm a convert in more than one sense, Roger. I, I grew up in a house of uh, immigrants, Dutch immigrants, they, they, a lot of them fled to North America after World War II. And so they were all Dutch Calvinists. And that's sort of the background that I grew up in and went to a Calvinist school up till about the sixth grade. Um, but, you know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. So from about the seventh grade to about the age of 20, I think you could best describe me as a hedonist. I often say I'm a recovering heathen, and I still stand by that. Um, and uh, met a girl, we had different religious backgrounds, and we started to try and sort through those because we both had the sense that uh, that you have to work that out if you're going to spend your lives together. And both gave our hearts to Christ simply by studying the Bible and going to different churches. And uh, and then, as that process was taking place, I ended up in a Seventh-day Adventist evangelistic meeting. I got invited. You know, prophecy had always arrested my attention. I got invited to a meeting, and six weeks later was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And three weeks after that, gave my first Bible study and Three months after that, I held my first campaign. That is fantastic. Uh, so so w- were you a convert in uh, Canada? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, um, I still speak the Canadian language. Eh? I do a little bit. Um, only I just became an American, actually, last fall. Both my wife and I did because our kids grew up here and it was time to sign up. But, yeah, became a Christian in Canada. And in Canada, evangelism is a lot tougher. It's a lot more secular, a lot more postmodern than America is, and I cut my teeth on evangelism in an area where roughly one-third of Canadian atheists lived, and so I, it was trial by fire getting started. Uh, that's, that, that's fantastic. So let's talk about all things evangelism. 
specifically evangelistic preaching, preaching to the secular mind, preaching to sure. people who have no religious background. Um, you've been preaching, uh, doing evangelism, frontline evangelism for the last 25 years. What has changed in the last 25 years? Uh, when well, you first started, started preaching, preaching. And, and, and now what has changed and what has stayed the same? Well, I heard you reference, you know, secular minds and, and, and so on. And this will come as a surprise to many people. I'm going to say something that's going to appear counterintuitive to a lot of pastors, but evangelism has gotten easier over 25 years than harder because the audience is more millennial. It's more um, postmodern and secular. That's an easier audience. And so, you know, uh, sometimes people ask me, have you changed your method? No, absolutely not. I've dug my heels in and I've doubled down on the method and I still open uh, a public meeting with Daniel chapter two. And here's why. Um, the secular mind, I don't believe there are genuinely, sec- you know, real secular minds, genuinely secular, but they profess secularism. They adhere to sort of nihilist philosophies. Uh, but Daniel 2 is like a slap upside the face. They might actually leave that meeting still upset with me for being religious, but they come back because they can't explain what they just heard. And my conviction is that God did not make a mistake with the topics he gave the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He did not miss the final generation and he's not calling an emergency meeting saying, oh, I didn't see the seculars and the postmoderns and the millennial generation coming. Now, he guessed right. He got it exactly right. And that message better with a modern audience than it did with an audience a generation ago. I, I, I find the same thing uh, as I do evangelism, that um, usually the, the critics of evangelism and evangelistic preaching uh, don't do any, right? Uh, no, that's right. So, yeah. so, 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 <laughs> that's true. I remember one time uh, doing uh, and participating in an evangelistic series with you in the city of Portland. Oh, that was and a long time ago, man. I, it's a, lo- it's a long time ago. Yeah. It was, yeah, I you're making me about, old, Roger. Yeah, it's about 2007, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And I remember somebody asking you, who are you targeting? Yeah. And I remember that your answer was, uh, I target sinners. That's right. That's my demographic. Right. Okay, so uh, talk to us a little bit about that. When you're preparing your message, right, do you have somebody uh, in mind like uh, uh, Joe Secular and, and Jill non-religious? How, how, how do you work your sermon? Right. Here, yeah, and I've fought the, I've fought the temptation to, to try and narrow what I'm preaching to a, too narrow of a demographic. And I know that that's trendy in the 21st century. Who, who's your audience? Is it young millennials? Is it the working class? Is it the professional class? Who's your? And here's, here's what it boils down to. Jesus used one-size-fits-all stories. The, the parables that he told worked on the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. They worked on the uh, Sadducees, but they also worked on the peasants who's working in the field. And he used one-size-fits-all stories because the core issue you know, the existential questions of human existence are the same regardless of your status in life. Everybody wants to know, where do I come from? What does my life mean? Where am I headed? Do I mean anything? Is there any point to living? And if you tailor for that audience, if you tailor for the sinner instead of any particular demographic, and you approach it the way Jesus did, you get them all. You, you get them all. Now, there are some myths, and I call them myths because they're, they're based on opinion and not reality, which is 
um, uh, that people are not interested in evangelism, that uh, you're only going to get uh, an over 60 crowd. <laughs> yeah, um, but, uh, and they're all blue-collar, they're all blue-collar uh, immigrants who uh, never went to school and hardly understand English, too. I've been told that. Correct. So t talk to me about your audience. Who are you preaching to this day? Okay. The audience, it's hard to figure out. You know, there, there's no exact demographic that matches it because it seems to be a cross-section of the community you're in. So if I'm in a community that has lots of immigrants, of course, there are lots of immigrants in the audience. But in other cities, it, the audience is almost always a cross-section. It ranges anywhere from eight years of age. We get kids in the meetings. I, if you're eight or nine, I don't put you in the children's program. I bring you in because you can understand. Uh, we're getting lots and lots of young people, college-age kids. Um, retirees, you do get those, too, because they have more time to come. If I'm holding multiple sessions, they come in the afternoon. But it's almost always a cross-section of the community that you're working in, and it doesn't boil down to any one demographic. And so, you know, I know that we'd like to read all of the demographic studies and get another study from Barna, and those are useful, but I... Uh, I tend to reject those and rely on the fact that God told us the world will be lit up with the glory of Christ and the right people will always come. So you tend to believe God and not studies. That, that's an innovative uh, approach. Which... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you look at that parable Jesus tells in Mark chapter 4, it's, it's very instructive. It says that this farmer goes into the field, he plants his seed, and then he goes to sleep. Right? He goes to sleep for the whole night, and then he comes back to see what happens. And it says in that parable, he doesn't understand how the seed grows. And if I'm really honest as an evangelist, I don't either. I don't get how it works. I'd be lying if I told you I understand why people are walking forward after the lousy appeal I just gave. I don't get it. But instead, what we do is we pull out all the studies and we obsess about it. We're like the farmer doesn't go to bed. He goes out at two in the morning with a flashlight to see if the seed has come up yet. What more can I do? He's not trusting that God knows the process of conversion. We don't convert people. We appeal to those that God is converting. And with that mentality, you always have the right audience, and it's always a miracle when it works. You rely on God, not studies. I, I really like that, that we don't convert people. We appeal to the ones that God is converting. That's a good tweet. Um, so we'll, we'll make a note of it, and we tweet, <laughs> we'll tweet that out when this comes out live. Uh, now, uh, you just mentioned appeals. Yes, yeah. Walk me through your appeal process. Uh, what What... How do you do it? Uh, do you use cards? Do you use uh, just an invitation? Everything. Walk me through that. So if I'm a pastor, I'm listening at home. Um, I'm terrified of making an appeal. Uh, I don't yeah. know if, somebody, if somebody's going to come up or not. Uh, tell me, what's your process? All right. Here, here is, here, this will put everybody's mind at ease. I'm still terrified of appeals. Um, I, um, I'm terrified of public speaking. I'm an off-the-charts introvert. I fail every extroversion test. I would rather lock myself in a library with books than stand in front of a crowd and speak publicly. So terrified is always going to be a little part of it. But here's what's helped. Here's what's helped. Number one, uh, Paul is crystal clear that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. I can't convince people to be interested in Jesus. By the time I've made contact, God's already taken care of that. There's not even one cold interest in the book of Acts anywhere, not one. Um, God always gets them first, from the Ethiopian eunuch to Cornelius. Even on the day of Pentecost, it says there were devout men from every nation under heaven that were gathered there. So in, in preparing an appeal, you have to have faith that God's already speaking to them or they wouldn't be there. And because I can't convert those people, I don't try to convince them. And that's the number one mistake we make in appeals, is trying to convince people. Look, is there one more person here? Is this going to go on for 20 minutes? I know the fears. But... 
But if I appeal people to act on what they already know is true in their lives, the response is much stronger. So I say, look, you know that God has been knocking at the door of your heart since the day you were born. He has followed you all the way to this moment, and you have asked him some questions over the course of your life, things that confused you, and now he's giving you answers, and he's asking you, what do you want to do about it? Do you want the relationship? That's a much different process. That's an appeal to the conviction that God has placed in their heart instead of me trying to build conviction. Building conviction will fail. The other thing that I do is if I'm preparing to have a major altar call, I start the appeal from the first sentence, and I drop the appeal all the way through that sermon, and that's the one point of that entire sermon is what I'm making the appeal for. I'll even tell people, tonight I'm going to ask you at the end of this presentation to make a decision, and here's the decision you'll be asked to make. So they know what the call will be for before I start preaching, and they're thinking about it for the next 45 minutes. Um, And then I change it up. I don't have a major call every night. I do use cards because... If the audience is more than 2,000 people, that data is invaluable for going out and visiting these folks. Uh, other times, I just have them stand, I always, or I have them raise their hand or something, but I never preach without some kind of a response mechanism. And Roger, that's not because the Bible disp- demands a response mechanism. The altar call is only 200 years old. It didn't exist before Charles Finney. But what you do if you let conviction build in people's hearts and you don't ask them to do something about it. You actually harden them against decisions. And so while there's no biblical mandate for an altar call, having a response mechanism of some kind allows them to act on the conviction of their heart and move them one step closer to Jesus. So never a sermon without an appeal. And I let them know what the appeal is, and I keep it as broad as possible. I don't have an appeal that says, hey, if you would like to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church and be a deacon in six months, and, and, and I mean, if you're going to get one person, maybe. So you want the appeals to be broad. There are some of you here tonight who have been wrestling with a decision for Christ, and you know you can't put it off anymore. You've been asking your whole life for more. You need to come forward. There are others of you that have something in your life that you need to reconcile. And so I broaden the pool of people that should come forward, especially in the first, you know, I still do a month-long campaign, and in the first two weeks, it's as broad as possible and gets narrower as we move along because the education process has happened. But I keep them broad. I start in the first sentence. So do you start pretty much on opening night making some type of invitation? Oh, or you- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, opening night's Daniel 2. And Daniel 2, all, there's only one point in every one of my sermons. I'm not sophisticated enough to have three-point sermons. The point in Daniel 2 would be there is a God in heaven. That's it. You know, the line that uh, Daniel utters to Nebuchadnezzar in that chapter. There is a God in heaven. And we're asking the question, is there someone out there? And, um, and the appeal might be as simple as this. Hey. Tonight, you've seen evidence that there is something out there that we can't explain. And if you would like to know that God a little bit better, stand to your feet with me and pray. It'll be an easy sell, but at least there's some action, some small decision they make right on night number one. Okay, so uh, there are some people in your series that you have come into contact with um, that have made an impression on you. Can you share with me two stories? Oh yeah. One, one story of of something that went really well, that it was unexpected, it blessed you, it stayed with you, and maybe one story of some time that things didn't go as planned, but God still worked. Uh, ah. Share share a couple how, of stories with how me. How do I how do I narrow that down, Roger? All hell breaks loose in every campaign. You lose control of a thing in your first week, and. Uh... Can we say all hell breaks loose? All heck breaks loose. Yes. Uh, you go ahead and leave that in the it press. Does. It does. It does. Yeah, it does. 
and that's, I used to panic. And then I used to, then I started to smile when everything's going wrong and it's too much to be a coincidence. You actually relax a little bit. Hey, somebody doesn't want this to happen. And now I worry if it doesn't go wrong. So how do I narrow it down? I always ask God for an evangelist. Look, if Jesus doesn't come before, you know, I don't have that many more years left on my clock. Let's say I've got 20 good years left on the road. Um, maybe 15, 20 years, who knows? Uh, I want there to be evangelists who know what they're doing, and I love converts as evangelists. And so I always ask, one I've got right now, it was in Minneapolis, a young guy named Nick. He's in his senior year at Southern right now, and he's preparing. He only wants to do one thing of it his life, is carry on the work of public evangelism. And so, you know, I always seem to get what I ask for. Lord, bring me the next evangelist. Bring me in. Here's a guy in his 20s who uh, is gung-ho. So there's a Fantastic. I've got one. I don't know if I should. Pre- okay, here's one. I said, I, I made this appeal one night. You don't know how much time you've got. You know, this could be your last night. I don't know. But you've been putting your decision off. And as I'm saying that, this guy who sits in the second row falls over and has a heart attack right there in the auditorium. Wow. And I'm, I'm laughing about it now because he survived. I can laugh about it. And he was the most stubborn interest I've ever had. I, he, says, he came every night. He says, look, I'm not interested in this. I'm not going to join your church. That's fine. I'm just glad you're here. I'll call him Steve. I'm glad you're here, Steve. Uh, and every night, same thing. And then I make this appeal. He falls out of his chair. I'm laughing, but he falls out of his chair, has a heart attack, and the medics come and get him. And I think, well, I guess that's the last we see of Steve. Um, and he's gone the next night. On the third night, he's back. And he actually still has his hospital bracelet on. And he still had the tape on his hand where he had the IV. And he had come straight from the hospital back to the meetings. And again, he said, look, I'm not interested. I, I, uh, I'm not interested. I'm not going to join your church. But he came straight from the ER back, back to my meetings. Right. And he still hasn't made a decision. This has been three years, and we still correspond. And there are some, I don't know what it's like for you, Roger, but the ones that, that make decisions, I'm faster to forget their names than the ones who don't and that I labor with for years. And so he still hasn't come across the line. And it's the most frustrating experience. You know the interest is high. He came from the ER back to the meetings, and yet he still hasn't crossed the line. Those ones frustrate me. Now, uh, I see you on TV. I see you on home yeah. channel. I see you on the internet. You, you, you do How many series do you do a, a year? I do one major urban evangelistic series a year because we really invest in it. We want it to be an experience where churches who maybe haven't seen much success or many interests come through their doors um, really see a lot come through the doors and experience something positive. So I do one of those a year, and that'll be anywhere from 10 to 25 churches involved, usually 20 to 25 churches involved. I do one of those. We also do a short series every year that's like four or five nights, like uh, Shadow Empire, uh, pale horse, and those are designed to focus on the church and really make sure that the pastor is the teacher and the focus of attention for the interest. So there are two every year uh, because I've got to do, you know, I've got to run this ministry at the same time. Sure. And the big and the big city campaigns, as you know, uh, that's a full time job just to pull one of those off every year. Um, yeah. So it's two big ones a year now, or like one big one, one short one. And sometimes we'll do an overseas series that's like two weeks. So. Uh, where where, I, where I'm going with this is, you know, you're, you're everywhere. You're um, you're writing books. You're 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 doing public speaking, pretty much every day of your life. Yeah. Uh, and and somebody would would think, well, he doesn't get nervous anymore. Like that's just, <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, uh, yeah. I know that. I wish that was true. I still, you know what? I think Roger, if you're no longer getting nervous, you probably. Um, 
don't care enough. You're not thinking about what's about to unfold. And so a little, the, the ones who are apathetic, the ones who don't get nervous anymore, I suggest to them, it might be time to rethink doing this if you don't care anymore. Um, nerves come with caring. And so, and I'm naturally not good up front. I don't naturally want to be up front. I just about pass out if I'm sitting in church and someone says, hey, Sean, come up and tell us for three minutes, you know, what's going on at the VOP. That just about makes me throw up. And yeah, I still, I still feel like throwing up on opening night happens every single time. Now, when you're preaching, uh, is, there, is there a difference in preaching uh, from your perspective to a smaller crowd than to a larger uh, venue? Uh, is there anything you do different in preparing and presentation? No, no, I don't. I actually don't. They're harder. Smaller crowds are actually harder, and I've done both. You know, I've had an audience of seven, and I've had an audience of 20,000. And uh, 20,000 becomes a little faceless. Your, your, your nerves calm a little bit. Somehow that seems easier to me. Seven is intimate because you have to look everybody in the eye. And, and so th th there's, there's pluses and minuses on both of those. In that small group, I have time to visit every one of them. Seven interests in a meeting. I can visit every one of them and get to know them. And I can study their faces as I'm speaking and see if the airplane is landing, so to speak. See if I'm making sense to them. Um, and you lose that ability in a much larger crowd, like the meeting you and I did. There's no way one person could have uh, visited all those people back in 2007 because, you know, our, our, our big nights were like 2,000 people and, and yep. more than 1,000 on our low nights. How can two people know all of those people? Intimate is easier in some regards, um, more nerve-wracking because you can see what they think. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. Um, but, but, uh, but, yeah, but I preach like, I, in my mind's eye, I preach like the whole world is listening every time. You know, I, I believe that we owe that to, to heaven. You know that uh, in that meeting that we had over there in Portland, there was a church that was planted out of that. And I that, uh, don't think yeah. I know that. I don't think I knew that. <laughs> yeah, there's a church that was, yeah, it's a church that was planted, and they have an attendance right now well over 200 people, very strong Wow. Church, yeah, is uh it was downtown Portland, a very secular city. They are very yeah, involved sure. in the community. They went to a building uh and and the city allowed them to do all kinds of different acts of service in like they basically adopted a a, a high rise of apartments and they do all kinds of classes in there. No and, kidding. Yeah, so you didn't know that but that was a result of a whole oh. public evangelistic series, yeah. Oh, man, that's good news. See, I have to wait 11 years to find out. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so so it, it, before our time is done, I have uh, three or four uh, questions that I maybe rapid fire. Uh, what do you do to make sure you stay fresh, that you just don't uh, just repeat the same thing over and over, but give it a, uh, <laughs> re a relevant, yeah. like, like this is happening right now. This is how this... Uh, world events connects to Bible prophecy. How do you right. stay fresh in the pulpit? Two things: you got to not isolate yourself and um, and live in an Adventist conclave. I've fought that my whole life. Most of my friends are still the heathens that I once was. I float every idea past them. I have a little private group online where I float my ideas past them to see if they're biting on them. And um, and so you got to have the outside contact. That's your audience, after all. And the other one, I read. I read obsessively. I never, you know, last night, I think, because I don't sleep more than about three, four hours a night, I read for four or five hours through the night again. You got to stay on top of it. Now, I don't 
innovate for the sake of innovation. My public evangelistic meetings, probably if you were to listen to them now, are 80% the same as the last time you heard them, because the biblical part doesn't shift. But you do have to make sure that you're being understood by your audience, and to know, and to know your audience, you got to know people. Yeah, but uh, you are correct. I, I think that the biblical part remains the same, but I see you upgrade your uh, your slides uh, to make oh, yeah. them more relevant. Uh, th that and and I notice all the time. I follow you on Twitter. Uh, leaders are readers. So it, yeah. how important how important it is it for uh, a pastor, a leader, to read and keep up uh, and just grow that way. Yeah, I don't know how you minister without reading. I don't know how. And for me, it's an addiction. I, I walk five to eight miles every day, and I read the whole way. It's something that HMS Richards used to do, too. And I actually just bought a Kindle the other day and caved in because I prefer paper books. But now the Kindle's easier to walk around with. Um, and I always read broadly. I try to read from history, from politics, from theology, from and not just, you know, you get me in trouble, I suppose, but I read Adventist authors, but I try to make sure that I'm reading the books that everyone in my street is reading, too, so I know how they think. A person's reading list is a map of their intellectual development. As a matter of fact, if I'm visiting in your home, I'm always going to peek at your bookcase if you're an evangelistic interest, because it tells me who you are. I know what your intellectual processes are. So reading's indispensable. I don't know how you preach without reading. I don't know. That That is fantastic, and, and also through uh, what... What would be a couple of books that you could recommend that's on your reading list? Uh, it can be oh. some, something, something that you read 20 years ago or something that you just read that, that you would say, hey, read this. It's really good. Well, the ones that pop into mind, I mean, I've got, I've got 700 titles sitting here on my desk. Um, which one do I pick? Thomas Cahill. You guys remember I did a series on Celtic Christianity because they so closely mirrored Seventh-day Adventism uh, in the 5th century. Uh, Thomas Cahill's How the Irish Saved Civilization is breathtaking. It, it, you know, here's this group of barbarians basically drinking blood out of human skulls. And within 10 years, they're the most literate people in Europe, and they're Christian missionaries. How does that happen? That was a great book, um, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Protestantism by Alex Riley. I'm reading that one right now. It's one of the better. Ever since Roland Baton's Here I Stand, I think this has got to be one of the best books on the Reformation and the effect that Protestant thinkings had on the Western world. Uh, what else? I'm reading Plutarch right now, Lives of Noble Grecians and Romans, uh, because it's uh, an ancient definition of what great people were. That's fascinating. Uh, Susan Neiman's uh, book on evil and how theodicy is actually the only question philosophers have ever asked. That's brilliant. Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist. That's brilliant. Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov. That's You know, those are in the last 30 years I went through those, and they ask all the big questions that every human being struggles with. If you can read through some Dostoevsky novels, uh, I'll get in trouble here, I know I'm recommending reading novels, but these novels ask the big questions that all your neighbors are asking, and now you know how to build your appeal. Dostoevsky's brilliant, um, and that takes some work, as you know, those are thousand-page novels with names you can't yeah. Yeah, can't pronounce. John Stott on the cross, oh my goodness, that one's good. Uh, who else, who else, who else? Susan Cain. If you happen to be introverted, her book, Quiet, was brilliant. It's in my top 10. I could go on all day, Roger. I could go on all day, man. I love it. No, oh, Flashpoints Flash by George Friedman on the current political situation along the frontier with Russia and Europe. That book's brilliant, too. I could go on for days. Perfect. Now, uh, before we're done, I want you to let our pastors know, most of the people that listen to this 
podcast, our pastors uh, and yeah. leaders, what do you have going on? What's coming up? Uh, this okay. podcast is going to be uh, probably in the next month or so is going to be uh, um, released. So what's going yeah. on? Okay. Our next short series designed for the churches is I've rebooted the appearing. I've completely rewritten it, done a new book. I think it's better than the original. And that's coming out in October. But the big thing we're working on is this. You know, I have all the nice toys at my disposal because I work in media ministry. Now it's self-funded. I have to raise the money for those nice toys. But I'm replicating it for every church. I'm taking everything we do from pre-work to public campaigns, my own sermons, everything, and I'm bundling them up so that any church can become a franchise of the Voice of Prophecy. We're calling them Discovery Centers. And uh, in May of 2019, I'm going to have a convention. We'll stream it as well, but out of the NAD headquarters, um, we're going to invite people who want to come. I'll roll out all the tools that we use, show you how to use them. It'll just be like opening a local McDonald's. Here's your menu. Here are the tables. Here's the deep fryer. Here's everything that we do in evangelism, and here's the reason it works so well for us, and you can replicate it at the local church level on a local church budget. We're opening what's called a discovery center. I want to open a 1,000 of those by um, the spring of 2020, and uh, we'll all learn together, and we'll all open with a public evangelistic meeting across the country on the same night. That's what we're cooking. Discoverycenters.com has a place to sign up where you can find out what we're providing for churches and it's the whole kit, Roger. It's everything that I've ever had at my disposal, packaged for churches to use. So it's discoverycenter.com? Discovery, com. I believe right now there, there's a placeholder where you can sign up and say, let me know more about this. But essentially, then I'll let all my radio audiences, and we have five different shows, I'm going to let them know, hey, if you want to know what's going on in your town that the Voice of Prophecy sponsors, go to discoverycenters.com, and eventually that website becomes a landing place for interest, and I'll send them through the doors of your church, and I'll give you what you need to welcome them and a program to run for them. I really appreciate the level of excellence of what you do, Sean, and I, you're a gift to the church, and we really thank you for joining us today in the LEAD podcast. I'm praying for you, and I know that God is going to use these strategies to bring people into his kingdom. May God bless you, and nice talking to you. Hey, thanks, Roger. Pleasure to talk to you, too. Maybe we'll get to do a campaign together again one day. Amen. So there you have it. There's our conversation with Sean Boonstra. We do hope you enjoyed it. We hope you got a blessing out of it. I know I did when we recorded this interview, and I'm just so excited to see where the Lord is going to lead us this season with the lead podcast. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to tweet at us. My name is Ryan Becker, so you can tweet at Ryan180Becker, or you can tweet at Roger at LeadSU, or you can email us, LeadSUPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and, and most other podcatching apps. All you have to do is search for the Lead Podcast. You search for Roger's name or my own, and you will find us. If you subscribe on iTunes, please leave a review. That really helps us out, and we'll see you next time.